listening to Thulos, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Thulos offers a scriptural daily bread for God's household and explores servant leadership as an Orthodox Christian. I'm Holly Benton, your host and executive director of the Orthodox Christian Leadership Initiative. Our co-host is Father Timothy Lowe, former rector of the Tontour Ecumenical Institute in Jerusalem. And our guest today, special to me for sure, is Dr. Richard Benton. So hello and welcome to both of you, Father Timothy and Rich. Thank you, Holly. I'm I'm glad to hear Rich is still special. It's very good to be here, and I'm happy that uh, I'm still special as well. So Richard Benton has a PhD in Hebrew and Old Testament and co-hosts the Bible as Literature podcast, which is also on the Ephesus School Network. His new book, Loving Language, Learning to Hear Your Neighbor, has just been released, and he also has published a commentary on the book of Hosea and is working on a series of commentaries for the Minor Prophets. So, Rich, tell us a little bit about your love of languages and how it connects to your research of the Minor Prophets. Yeah, thank you, Holly. Yeah, so I I really encourage people to take a look for the book, Loving Language, and it's been a labor of love, although love and labor are both part of it. The focus of the book is the way that we challenge ourselves to learn languages, to humble ourselves, so that we can listen to and learn from the people around us, especially those who come from other places and far away with very different experiences. This has always been a part of my love of language. That's where the title comes from. And it really does intersect in a serious way with my study of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, because understanding where the author of Scripture is coming from requires learning his language. By learning that language, then we have the opportunity to understand really what's being said. By spending the time we need to understand the original languages or by listening to those who are knowledgeable in the original languages, we get nuance and insight into what the Scripture is saying. And if we're a Christian, this is the basis of our belief and of our trust in the Lord. And so this is the basic understanding of why Hebrew is an important part for me. But then going into the text of the Hebrew Bible, recognizing that no nation is above another nation, just because you live in the midst of one nation or another nation lives in your midst, both nations were created by the single God of the heavens and the earth. And so one language is not superior to another language any more than one nation is superior to any other, and that there's one language that's superior to others, and that's Hebrew. So we have to focus on the Hebrew of the Bible in order to understand that. I know Father Tim needs me to say that because he says Hebrew, and it's like, well, which Hebrew? Because we have Israeli Hebrew, which some scholars even call Israelian. They're even uh, skeptical to call it Hebrew because it differs so much from the Hebrew of the biblical text. And then looking at the minor prophets, it's been another labor of love for me. How do we understand when we hear multiple voices put together in a single scroll, what's the story that then they tell together as the single word of the Lord? And that's the challenge that I really enjoy and that I find very fruitful when studying the Book of the Twelve. Well, Richard, I'm glad to hear you obviously promote the necessity of Hebrew, but you you tricked me this time. You connected it to the love of the neighbor and respect of the neighbor, which, you know— 
hits me twice, which is good. So I need to be hit twice. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Today, we're going to focus on the book of Joel. We did an earlier episode on Joel back in January of 2022. We looked at the first chapter, which announces the impending doom for the people of Israel. It was painful to hear because Israel had already suffered so much under Babylonian captivity, and then the prophet Joel announces their inevitable demise by a swarm of locusts. It's like adding insult to injury. But then at the end of Joel, and it's a short book, only three chapters long, we will hear about the Lord's judgment against the nations and the final blessing of Judah and Jerusalem. So what does the Lord's judgment have to do about servant leadership? On the one hand, absolutely nothing. If judgment is the Lord's, the dulos, the servant or slave in the Lord's household, cannot stand in the place of judge. The Lord alone is the final judge. On the other hand, our duties and responsibilities in many capacities, from parent to teacher to manager or priest, and all other sorts of roles, require us to exercise a certain level of practical judgment. Words like fairness, restitution, payback, recompense, they come into play for leaders in many different capacities. So we will look to Joel to establish the framework of recompense. So for starters, Rich, can you provide the story arc of Joel and the context for what we will read from chapter three today? Yeah, so in Joel chapters 2 and 3, since we already talked about chapter 1, chapter 1 is about the plague of locusts and declaring a fast when God himself has sent the locusts to create a famine. So it's about sanctifying that famine, which means sanctifying a fast, and that was chapter 1. In chapter 2, we have this invasion of an army, and it's a little bit confusing because sometimes it sounds like it's locusts that are like an army. Sometimes it's an army that's like locusts, so it can be a little bit confusing to the reader as you go through, which I think is deliberate. I think sometimes when we get confused by a biblical text, it's supposed to be confusing to us so that we have to do more work to really wrap our brains around what it's trying to say. And in Hosea, we already had the kind of double blow against Israel, which is you try to preserve your riches and your agricultural wealth God says, which I can destroy at any time. And also they try to build up their city walls to defend against foreign enemies and other nations, which God also says he can destroy at any time. And now in chapter 2 and chapter 1 of Joel, we have this combination locust plague and invading army that are hard to distinguish. And I think that this follows very nicely on the kind of threats that were set out in Hosea. So in chapter 2... The Lord is saying that he is sending this army of the nations against the people of Israel, specifically in Jerusalem. And so this destruction is going to truly cause the people to suffer. In verse 9 of chapter 2, they shall run to and fro in the city, they shall run upon the wall, they shall climb upon the houses, they shall enter in at the windows like a thief. I mean, this is what the enemies are going to be doing. They're going to be invading through every opening of the city in order to destroy it. Then we get the unfortunate news in verse 11 of chapter 2, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. For his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? So we know that the Lord is the head of this army of nations invading 
the country invading the city specifically. But then in chapter three, we learn that there's a judgment against the nations. And so as you talk about, Holly, the fairness and the other kinds of practicalities, to view the Lord at the head of the nations that's going to be destroying your city, but it doesn't mean that those who are invading your city are good because then they're going to be judged because are they acting on their own behalf or are they acting in obedience? And this is another theme I brought up in Hosea that human beings actually are very poor at justice because they tend to skew it in their own favor, whether it's to be too merciful or too violent. It's only the Lord who is just. So that's the setup for chapter three and the judgment against the nations, that the nations are not righteous simply because they do what the Lord says, but they're going to be judged to see if, in fact, they are doing precisely what the Lord says and no more. This is always the trick. Yeah, I like that last statement, Richard. There's a limit, and so they come under judgment by pushing it too far, is how I understood what you just said. So let's hear from the prophet Joel chapter 3. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will requite your deed upon your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, removing them far from their own border. But now I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will requite your deed upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far off, for the Lord has spoken. So this is an uncomfortable passage. We definitely are not hearing about a merciful God who is just turning the other cheek. Requiting their deeds upon their own heads, as described in this passage, sounds pretty brutal. But I am intrigued by this question the Lord asks of Tyre and Sidon. He asks, are you paying me back for something? The question almost seems ludicrous, likely rhetorical to really call out the arrogance and the wrongdoings of these nations. So what is going on with this question? We see this reversal of the actions of the nations coming on them. You started with verse 4 and verse 3. And they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. So now that their children are going to be sold to Israel is the reversal of the fortunes. So they go, they invade these nations, just like they're supposed to. But then what do they do? They profit from the invasion for themselves in order to get prostitutes and drinks. Okay? This is where we have verse 2 of chapter 3, where the Lord calls Israel his heritage. So yes, he is sending the nations against Israel. But that doesn't mean now, since they're invited in, that now they can do whatever they want once they're in the place. Like, I was in Germany last month, and I was staying at an Airbnb, but just because I was paying for the Airbnb doesn't mean I get to do whatever I want. So when I busted a cup, I had to pay the owner for it, because, you know, it's not really my cup. The Lord invited them in. Actually, the Lord forced them to go in, but now they want to do whatever they want. This is what is the fall of the Tyrians and the Sidonians. They're not going to render anything to the Lord because what are they going to render? The booty they got from Israel? 
that belong to uh, the Lord anyway. So what are they going to pay back? There's nothing for them to pay back or to make complete. That's the word in Hebrew, which is um, mishalimim. Mishalimim comes from the root shalem, which means to make whole, but that's also related to the root for shalom, which is peace or the wholeness. So what are you going to complete? How are you completers? How are you going to recompense the gomlim? That's the gamal is another word. What are you going to do to make things complete? You're not going to make things complete. All you can do is follow my will. If you follow my will, we'll be fine. But I'm going to judge you according to what will you are following. Just like I judged the Israelites. We have this beautiful reversal in Leviticus and Numbers. We have the Israelites coming in and kicking out the nations because the nations were disobedient. And then we have the Babylonians come in, kicking out the Israelites, because the Israelites were disobedient. And now we have the nations that are being sent, because the Israelites are being disobedient. But now there's going to be a punishment, potentially a judgment against the nations, because they were treating the land as their own. It keeps going back and forth. The Lord is not favoring one nation over the other. If you want to call that fairness, you can. Everyone gets judged. That's what's fair about the whole mechanism. Yeah, I like it that Joel is presenting God as the God of all nations, as you say. And in that judgment, everybody comes under the same rule, the same commandment. It's like falling into temptation. You can be the instrument of God in some sort of activity or called to do something in the biblical sense of that. And then you take it upon yourself to do more usually in a sinful way, and therefore come under the same judgment that you were just the instrument of judgment. It's a humbling of all people and of all human arrogance whenever it raises its insidious head. There's one throne and there's one judge, and that's how we know it's fair. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Because there is not one judge for that nation, another judge for that nation. Maybe that judge is lenient. Like I was just talking to someone I know who had to go to court and he was afraid to go to court because the judge was particularly strict towards his type of offense. But for some reason, he got sick and they got another judge. And the guy's lawyer said, go today to the courthouse. This is the judge that you want. Make sure you get this judge. (laughs) And he got off easy. You know, that's what happens when you have a different judge depending on the day of the week, right? Or depending on who gets sick. You have one judge who never gets sick. (laughs) He takes one day off a week. But when he takes a day off, there are no cases being heard that day. So the Lord takes off Saturday. Don't bring any cases to him on that day. But no matter what other day you come, it's going to be him who's going to be adjudicating it. (laughs) I like your example. That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's true. (laughs) Exactly. And for the nations and for Israel, it is the same judge If you look at how the book of the Twelve, the book of the Minor Prophets, if we look at it as a single book, we see how it's unfolding. This is the chapter where both Israel suffers and Israel is being taught once again that there is one judge above the heavens and the earth over all nations, and this is the only leadership that exists. And so, Any leadership that any human being would have has to match with this. But one thing that any human leader is going to have to grapple with after reading this is that no matter what the human leader does, the human leader is going to fall short, is going to follow their own ego, their own biology, 
and will fall under judgment. And this is why the mercy is needed, because without this mercy, we can see what happens. No matter what you are leading, no matter how you're leading, you will overstep and you will be under judgment. And the hope, therefore, is only in the mercy of the single judge. Nicely said, Rich. Thank you, Father. Thanks so much, Rich. And thank you, Father Timothy. Okay. Take care, you two. Thank you, Father. Good to see you, Father.